Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Michael R.J. Bonner. Michael's a communications and public policy expert and a historian. He took his doctorate at the University of Oxford, where he studied ancient Iran. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. I always have to deflate the stuffy Oxfordians by pointing out that, well, today when we hear Oxford, our brain is templated to think old, ancient, and venerable university. But obviously, the name Oxford. Ford had to have come from a place where they were castrated cattle were crossed the river. So it's always whenever I hear Oxford, it's always useful to keep that in mind. So you don't you don't get your brain put off into into too much fancy and ancient. But nonetheless, a, yeah, a good well, place. It reminds me of another anecdote that there, there was a story that the, the deers the the deer kept in the modern college deer park that they were just like the fellows that they were old infirm and inbred so <laughs> indeed uh, i'm indeed. with you there indeed today we're going to talk about relatively new book i guess it was quite was it the spring you it was published yeah april April, yeah. A book called In Defense of Civilization How Our Past Can Renew Our Present. So let's start off with the obvious question what is civilization? Right. So that, that's the million-dollar question. And I suppose I could be faulted for not trying to answer it, or at least not trying to answer it in abstract terms, because I think it's always going to resist definition of that sort. But I think it's the kind of thing that we can, you know, as Kenneth Clark said, we can recognize it when we see it, and we can also compare it to, you know, what it isn't. And what I do in the book is that I start before there was anything that you could call civilization, before people were living in cities or towns or, you know, single fixed places. And, you know, that's that's the fundamental difference, that there was a time when human beings didn't do that, that we moved around, that the relationships with the with with other people outside the immediate group were brief or or non-existent. Relationships with places were 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 brief and 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 perfunctory, that you would move around following the animals that you hunted and, and so forth. But that suddenly changed. So how do we describe that change? Well, we sum it up in the word civilization, that there's a sense of permanence. There's a sense that we have a place where we belong, that there is a sense that people have ancestors and therefore a past. And a natural extension of thought also suggests a future. That is what I mean by civilization. Yeah, one thing you do in your building up of the concept is you reject the congruence between civilization and settled agriculture. Correct. Yeah, th- that's very important because the first of all, the idea that there was an agricultural revolution, I mean, even the term agricultural revolution suggests a kind of Marxist outlook 
on on the development of history the what 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 we mean by that didn't actually happen the theory was that uh, people decided to farm and then they had to settle down well, what actually happened is that people settled down first before there was farming so the earliest the earliest towns or permanent permanent settlements and 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 what you might call temples they they are built in the near east shortly after the the ice age in fact almost immediately after the ice age and people are still hunting and gathering yeah, there's that big one in turkey that we've seen a lot about in the exactly. recent in the literature tell us about that one a little bit yeah so that's the place called gobekli tepe i can't remember what gobekli means but tepe means hill it's a it's a settle it's it's an old neolithic uh, very early neolithic settlement on on top of a hill in southern Turkey, and what it what it actually is is a temple. It's it it, it seems to be a, a sort of public shrine where ancestors were venerated, and there, there are sort of tiny fragments of skulls there and evidence that they were put on display. Kind of kind of grim and macabre by our standards, but but nevertheless, it it represents uh, a, a a realization that different groups of people had common had common ancestry, and there are, there's evidence of little sort of dwellings or, or you, you might call houses, what have you, around this around this sort of public structure. But when it was built, though, as I say, the Ice Age had just ended, and you know that was the period of the of the cave paintings in in Lascaux and so forth. That period has come to an end, and agriculture had not yet developed. Domestication of animals. It may have there may have been some kind of rudimentary form, but it hadn't it hadn't really taken taken shape the way it would five thousand years later. So this is long before the the supposed technological change that brought about agriculture. And what I infer from this is that you have to develop the sense that you belong in a particular place before you settle there. And that there's no sort of material or economic change that that presupposes that it's a fundamental change of outlook, and that of course raises the question: Well, what brought that about? I don't have an answer for that. It's just some, you know, maybe we will discover more sites. In fact, I, I'm I'm pretty confident that we will discover more such sites that might shed some light on that. But the fact is that we decided to settle before we developed agriculture. Okay. And then another one, just to kick out of the way, and this comes from people not understanding the big picture timeline, is some people would say it was the invention of writing, right? And that not, happened way later. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, it's an interesting question. Was there any kind of symbolic representation of anything? Well, yes, you find, obviously, there are cave paintings, but do they constitute some kind of language? Almost certainly not. There are also images that crop up on Göbekli Tepe, which seem to show what in another era you might call like sort of totem animals or something like that. We don't actually know what they represent, but it's not linguistic. It's not sort of characters that represent, you know, spoken language. But yeah, that comes much later. So the idea that there is some kind of technological change that m- brings about civilization or settled life and that sort of sets us apart from our hunter-gatherer ancestors, it's not true. And, and so let's maybe 
bring a little bit sharper focus on it. I know you're not going to be able to define it crisply, but one of the phrases you use, in fact, we'll get back, get back into this in more depth later, is the triplet of clarity, beauty, and order. Yeah. So look, I'm not, I'm not trying to say, I think a lot of people could read that and, and misinterpret what I'm saying that I'm not trying to say that those are the ingredients of civil. They're not what they are. They are, they are the outcomes. They are, they are products. So you can look at a Paleolithic cave painting and you can see it's very beautiful. Very often the very, very sort of vivid, energetic vision of, of, of animals sort of, they seem to be rushing forward or there's, there's almost a sense of motion when you, when you look at them in, in the cave, but are they clear? No, there are parts of them that are often missing. Very few of them even have hooves or the, the, they, they don't seem to be placed in any kind of particular area in the environment. There are no landscapes, no sun or moon. So there's a sense in which there, there's a kind of like jumble or disorder. What you find in, say, the art of ancient Egypt or Mesopotamia is that those those factors sort of come together. That there is a clear sense of what is being depicted. There's a sense of of, of an orderly organization to to the universe and sort of man, man's place in it, and that it is proportional and harmonious and 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 therefore beautiful. Those are the elements that come together in 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 civilized uh, material culture and that you could you can use them i think as sort of rubrics with which to to analyze the 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 art or 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 architecture or sort of literature of any particular period in 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 human history so you know you, people might be able to quibble with with uh, the headings that i chose or they might want to add something here or there but it's good to have these three sort of general rubrics i think for for ease of analysis and i sort of organize my information accordingly but ultimately i'm generalizing from the very earliest material culture from the first civilizations uh, egypt mesopotamia and to a lesser extent china and that's what i think i see clarity beauty and order together yeah let me throw out a hypothesis love to get your thought on it i'm a bit of a systems thinker trying to think about what are cycles that hold things together civilization comes with costs at some level right there's also obviously benefits and so perhaps the benefit side of the equation might be summarized in clarity, beauty, beauty, and order. Though mm-hmm. probably also, well, order equals safety. So at some level. So if we think about a cycling system where things are trying to escape from civilization, and sometimes do, which we'll talk about next, the overarching benefits of civilization being clarity, beauty, breeder, and order are the baits that tend to keep civilizations as a standing wave. Does yeah. that make sense? It, it does. And I think, you know, there are people, there's, there's an author, James C. Scott, who's, he, he's got a book, I think his latest book is called Against the Grain, and he has an earlier one called Seeing Like a State. Yeah, I was going to say, Seeing Like a State is a great favorite for listeners of the Jim Rutt Show. Um, yeah. A lot of people have read it, a lot of people talk about it. So what I would say sort of in response is that, yeah, there are trade-offs, if you might say, or, or even potentially downsides. The, that it's arguable that maybe not everybody, but on the whole, people would have been healthier not crowding into cities. 
and you know it took a long time in the history of humanity to work out exactly how to make that safer and better for us and of course once you're you've got people all sort of crowded in you you get you get law codes and police forces and what have you yeah there's no question about that and worse food and all kinds of things yeah very right? very likely however how do we account for the fact that it was always preferable you know civilizations collapse and yet we have always gone back to that structure we have never completely abandoned the the sense that we required stability and a place and purpose in 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 a single spot it on the whole it produces societies that are probably actually less violent than what came before there's there's that famous book war before civilization some statistics are are presented in there which are obviously you can question sort of paleolithic statistics but on on the whole you know warfare became much less devastating than it was before didn't obviously go away it became less violent the idea of like entire towns and villages and whole kin groupings being completely exterminated you know that that became more rare after people settled down and of course you know it was revived by people like the assyrians and the nazis but on the whole it was rare so yes, there are trade-offs. There are things that have to, you know, that, that you have to put up with, but civilized life has always been preferable since it's since it arose to the state of savagery or barbarism that could be the alternative to it. Of course, you know, you mentioned cities. It's a very interesting fact that probably cities were net killers of people until 1900 when we figured out maybe some exceptions in Rome where they understood clean water early. But in general, and certainly it was true in the West uh, until 1900, cities were net killers. And the only reason they kept growing was because people moved in from the countryside. So that, that kind of argues two things simultaneously that point in different directions, the problems of civilization, but also the attractions of civilization. Yeah. And I think that we have pushed, I th- let me put it this way. In the modern in the modern period, having worked out things like clean water and um, you know general sanitation and you know how to live how to live in big cities in, in a in a healthier manner, our cities have become I would argue far too large to to be on the whole useful to us. That there is I, I can't give you an exact number, but I suspect that there really is a a, a, a limit to the point at which many, many people living in one place uh, sort of be, remain sort of uh, a net benefit. If you live in a city with you know tens of millions of people, and it's far more than you could ever actually meet, and you know th- it can't really be governed. I think even with modern technology. So what I'm saying here is that even though there would be still a lingering desire or, or a, a, a need for people to live together in, in, in groups you know, throughout human history, that it does reach a limit and then technology can push it beyond that limit. And it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily good for us. So the idea of a net killer, I think, even though that we have cured that with technology, we, I think we've introduced other problems 
which I touch on in the book, things like atomization or the, the sort of isolation that comes from the sort of political abstraction when the population gets too too big and so forth. So I wouldn't, how should I put this? I would hesitate to blame the city itself when we can actually make that problem worse with technology, even though we've we've eliminated the disease factor, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, of course, the, another argument is that the result of what we have is essentially the emergent result of capitalism plus dominance and coercion. And the end result are big, big cities that are easier to control and are at least marginally more efficient in a purely economic term. Because one of the issues about market driven civilizations is efficiency at the margin is what is decide what decides most decisions in the marketplace there is no view to the future in the marketplace at least not much three years max and when you combine to find the elements particularly driven yeah. by the inner loop of money on money return you know economies of scale network effects even if they're only small effects everything interesting in economics happens at the margin that then the mega cities and and such are not predictable necessarily, but the actual emergent effects of the systems that we have. Yeah, which which goes back to the idea that simply because we have you know e- economic and technological advancements, it's not enough for us to call ourselves civilized. Yep, interesting. Now, one thing we can say about every civilization, and except our own, is that they have collapsed. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I I take your point, but I would I would. I would phrase that as a question. Has our civilization collapsed? I mean, if you lived in, say, Eastern Europe between 1922 and 1945, you might think that your civilization had collapsed. Or, you know, the First World War could be construed as a collapse of of a civilization. But again, despite the triumph of, of technology... So, yeah, they all do collapse, but I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you there. Yeah. Well, I was just going to – let's go next to whether ours is in the process of collapsing or not. But let's just talk generally about the fact that these civilizations, they obviously pr- provided something of value, and clarity, beauty, and order seemed like a reasonable stick down on the ground. But then they all collapsed, right? So you know, back up a little bit and tell us the the story of – collapse how does that happen where does that come from what are the dynamics of that it's a good question i mean a, a lot of people have tried to explain what those dynamics are and i don't attempt to do so i think it's just it's enough for me just to simply observe that in you know empirically in history this is just what has happened the the very very oldest attempt that i'm aware of to explain it is the is the old idea of the ages of the ages of the world. You have a golden age, a silver age. Hesiod and that kind of stuff. Exactly. So that's the first articulation of it. It also crops up in the Bible. There's a Zoroastrian scripture that includes it too. But yeah, the idea that there is a deterioration from a high peak and then it sort of builds back up again. You find that in many religions, there's the the Norse myth of Ragnarok in which the, the world comes crashing down and then everything sort of grows back up again. So yeah, people have observed this for a long time throughout history. And I guess you could say that time was viewed in a, more of like a cycle 
that sort of goes round and round and round. And, and the original meaning of the word revolution was that things would sort of go back to where they were before and there would be change. Obviously, I think that we don't, we don't really think of time that way. We don't think of our own civilization that way. We think that things, uh, I'm pretty sure this is still the dominant view. If you ask people on the street that things sort of move in a particular direction, this is a vision that's very important to, to liberalism and to contemporary doctrines of progress, that there is a sort of end state that we're moving towards, sort of Fukuyama idea of the end of history, also present in Marxism. And I think ultimately this all goes back to the Christian vision of, of a sort of direction of, of, of history, but it's been sort of secularized or sort of the spiritual element has been, has been removed from it. And of course, there have been people since Hesiod, like Ibn Khaldun, or I think Vico, who sort of posit that there are these sort of, you know, cycles to history, and you can sort of understand how they work and signs of decline and so forth. I think Arnold Toynbee thought that way. And most recently, there's Peter Turchin, who's come out with the book End Times, where he talks about you know, various uh, sort of economic and social indicators that portend collapse. I'm content to say that it just, civilization just collapses. That's just one of the things that happens in history. It, it, they, they rise and they fall. Eventually they become exhausted and they just collapse. Not always violently, not always permanently. Either you know the history of the history of Egyptian dynasty, the uh, dynastic Egypt or or imperial China, sort of basically the same sort of artistic and material culture and literature that gets sort of rearticulated over and over again, despite a couple of spectacular collapses. Whereas you have in Mesopotamia, you have the same sort of cycle of collapses, but several different several different cultures and 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 empires occupying roughly the same place that sort of succeed one another. In, in the West, as I say, we don't really think this way anymore. We, we, we've come to see ourselves, I think, as sort of having completely superseded the ruins of things that have come before. And I'm not sure that we are really capable of contemplating our own eventual collapse or fade out or, or however it might occur. But, you know, we have come close. I think in the 20th century... A lot of the spe- a lot of the sort of anxieties surrounding th- something like nuclear war, or you know warfare in general, the two great wars. I think that the, a lot of that was bound up with the idea that collapse could indeed occur. But since since the end of the Cold War, that hasn't really been front and center. Although now that there's war in Europe again, it may be coming back. Yeah, as interesting you mentioned Peter Turchin. He was on our show a couple of weeks ago. EP 190, Peter Turchin on Clio Dynamics and End Times. Also, I'm currently reading Neil Howe's new book, The Fourth Turning is Here, What the Seasons of History Tell Us About How and When This Crisis Will End. Another new attempt to tell a to my mind, kind of rigid and reductionist, but a, a cyclical view of history that has become quite popular with people. I'm trying to reach out to him to get him on my podcast. I haven't heard anything back yet, yet from him, but hope to 
hope to have one. And interestingly, we just had Cronin and Walker on talking about the science of time. And we talked about uh, how historically people thought of time as cyclical and that modern man thinks of time as linear. And maybe that's not quite exactly right. And so anyway, this, this topic seems to be in the air. And, you know, not only does people like Peter Turchin have his theories of collapse, much of which he talked about in his earlier works, but one that we talk about sometimes here on the Jim Rutt Show is Joseph Tainter in his book, The Collapse of Complex Societies, where he goes into a long, you know, deep analysis of all kinds of things. However, at the very end of that book, he comes out and says, well, Modern, and this was written in 1990, which I think is interesting at the, the time. He says, well, it's unlikely that our society will collapse because other societies were generally pushed over. They may have been tottering on their own internal problems, but they were generally pushed over by, you know, either in a big environmental event or more often by an invader. Right. And nobody's going to invade the modern civilization and knock it over. However, I think that, that of course, was the time of Fukuyama and the end of history, True. which people unfairly have read. He, his, his, the book is actually more nuanced than it is given credit for, but nonetheless, that idea that you know the status quo in 1990 was now so amazing, it's going to yeah. last for te- the Reich that will last for a thousand years. And then here we are 30 years later, it doesn't seem to be the case. Right. Well, I mean, I think anybody who says that the thing, that the, the way things are is the way they always will be, I mean, that's just simply not... Uh, plausible and historically it, it's pretty pretty idiotic i mean i don't i don't think that there's ever been a time immediately before some spectacular collapse in which somebody did not say that you know everything's great and it's going to last forever but you know things don't have to be pushed over in order to collapse and you know there's only if you think of something like the the Egyptian old kingdom, which lasted for what seven hundred, eight hundred years, I mean, by the time by the time you were sort of midway through that, you would have thought that you know this is just the way things are, the way things always will be. That's just they're just going to keep going on. It must have seemed absolutely indestructible, especially considering that several Mesopotamian dynasties had come and gone by then already, and yet it also faded away. There was no invasion. There was no, oh, there might have been a plague, but if there was, I don't think it was recorded. But eventually these things just lose their momentum or energy, and then that's that's the end. But the key thing for me in my book is that they also tend to come back together again. And they do that in a very particular way, which is that they there's always a movement or an urge to sort of reconnect one with the past, which goes back to the idea of the original impetus for civilization in the first place, which was the idea that mankind has a past, has a a place in the present, and eventually one in the future, and that we, you know, reconnect ourselves with it and develop that, redevelop that sense of, of stability, place, and purpose. If, I forget the name, Tainter you mentioned, uh, if, you know, what, what Tainter is missing is that you will collapse or your civilization will fade away if people give up on it, if they decide that it is no longer worth imitating what came before, or if there is no longer any kind of urge to maintain a connection with with older models or with uh, older ideas and therefore to try to 
you know, re recreate them and, and then perhaps even to surpass them. That will be the end if there's if there's nobody left to do it. On the other hand, revivals have happened even after very, very long intervals. People have decided to look back on what happened before and try to, you know, see what worked and re, re, recreate it. Obviously, people in the West will think of the Renaissance. They talk about the. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that in a minute. We'll we'll get back into that. Yeah. You know, and again, they give people just give up on it and becomes tired and it kind of peters out. That's one scenario. It gets pushed over as another. And you, we'll talk about this later. We also put forth the, a third one, which is people start innovating a little too hard. You know, the idea of futurism and. I would I would suggest yeah. that both Marxism and Nazism are examples of trying too hard to innovate and push a culture forward, and they ended up in sort of disastrous, non-functional forms, and they died, they crashed hard. Fortunately, neither of them conquered the whole world because if they had, we might have had the equivalent of a new Bronze Age collapse. You know, because you know, and even though we talk about the fall of Rome as the exemplar, the real exemplar in our lineage is the Bronze Age collapse, which was quite a bit appears at least to, as far as we know to have been quite a bit more devastating than the fall of Rome. Yeah, that was a spectacular collapse, the collapse of an entire world system. And it's a warning for us because, you know, it's, it's, it's an, a very ancient example, but it, it, it is a good example nonetheless of a globalized world order such as we now have. You know, in the ancient world, before the kind of communications technology that we now have, the late Bronze Age would have been the most interconnected the world could have been and ever was. And that was why the collapse was so total. It's a warning, you know, it's a, it's, it's a warning for us who grew up in the 90s when we were sort of used to, you know, the, the, the message of an ever more intricate and interconnected world, that that actually makes you fragile. It doesn't create, it doesn't create a stronger world. It creates one that is more likely to collapse totally when when trouble comes. We actually know this from the study of food webs. There's some optimal connectivity. If they become too connected, if there's too many species, it actually increases the probability of collapse rather than what you think is increasing robustness. A uh, little datum I love to throw out is for a long time, the percentage of world GDP and in international trade, the peak was 1914. Uh, and it wasn't, wasn't until 1988 that we got back to the percentage, about 25% of the world trade, a world economy being in trade. Now the number's in the 30s. It's higher than it's ever been, or at least it was until a couple of years ago. It seems like it's going down a little bit now. But uh, we're probably still well above the critical point that is in the danger zone where things could endogenously collapse. I mean, what's the effect of the Chinese possibly falling into deflation in a 1930s-style depression? Could happen. What's that all going to be? about right well very much so yeah yeah these issues with the russians screwing with the trade in grain and fertilizer that's a shock that we'll see flop through the system here for a few yeah. years our systems are, are indeed quite fragile and could go down yeah and i think that it's odd that that was i mean uh, my experience being a young person in in the 80s and 90s is that that idea was laughed at you said doesn't well you know let's all trade with China as much as we can. Okay, well, what if what if there's some kind of political turmoil there? We have no control over that. Like, how, don't you think that would be bad? Like, it, it, this didn't seem to occur. This sort of thing didn't seem to occur to anyone, at least not until it was too late. And of course, we've all just lived through a plague. You know, the 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 idea that there would be 
you know, pandemic diseases was sort of not really taken very seriously for, for some time. And it, it took that experience to remind many of us that we don't make enough of our own stuff and that we, we were fundamentally unprepared in, in a variety of different sort of critical industries. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the fragility is, the fragility is different, definitely there. And it was there at the time of the Bronze Age collapse. What's instructive about that, though, is that it's probably where that collapse was most devastating in the Aegean area, in what we now call Greece, that the rebirth had its most spectacular effect, which, of course, you could not necessarily have predicted knowing, you know, if you had known ahead of time that there was going to be some sort of horrible collapse, you might not have suspected that revival would come from the place where reading had been completely forgotten, where the alphabet had to be re-imported and then, you know, sort of re-engineered from nothing, where art and architecture virtually disappeared where the population collapsed, you know, by maybe half or more in, in, in many places. But, you know, that is what happened. And it, it, it has been paralleled elsewhere. But in the Bronze Age collapse, it was at its worst by far. So far. And that was five or six, 600 years from the Bronze Age collapse to the, you know, the high culture of, let's say, 600 BC, something like that. So it was a big gap. You know, it was essentially, if we went look backward from our, where we are today, that would be back around before Columbus. So that was that big of a gap in the historical period of progress. Actually, one actually be a hundred years, you know, six fourteen ninety. Yeah, that, uh, so a uh, hundred years before Columbus, almost. So a big, big gap. Yeah, which which is an interesting thing for us to contemplate because a lot of people would, you know, modern people are not used to thinking that some sort of great rebirth or revival would come from thinking about something that happened six or 700 years ago. And yet it always has in the past. All right, let's go on to the next one, which of course is the one we tend to think of when we think about our lineage, which is the collapse of Rome and then, yeah. the, and then the very gradual rebirth after that. Okay, so what I would say, the collapse of Rome is, is often misunderstood. It's misunderstood in two different ways. First of all, it, there are some people who don't want to think of it as a collapse. They want to think of it as some kind of natural evolution. I mean, I can tell you that it really was a genuine, horrific, shocking collapse, that the, the, the amount of CO2 dissolved in the atmosphere went down to below prehistoric levels. Uh, and we know this from ice core samples. So there's, there's, there's no question that there was indeed a collapse. The, but the other way that it can be misunderstood is that the, the people, the Germanic peoples that we call bar- barbarians, when they, when they moved further south, it was not their intention to destroy the, the Roman world. It was their intention to be sort of absorbed by it and to be part of it. Ultimately, that didn't really succeed, but it goes to prove my point that the idea of sort of imitating the, 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 the high civilization of the past was, you know, a sort of an, a natural and, and, and near universal tendency. So the, 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 the so-called barbarian rulers of Rome, that what they are actually trying to do is they are trying to recreate the old empire. And ultimately, they fail for a while. And then there's that what we call the Dark Age, 
I don't know if we still call it the Dark Age, but it's sort of habitually called the Dark Age. And then the the barbarian kingdoms that emerge out of that in in Western Europe, they do eventually, you know, form their own sort of independent kingdoms interacting with, you know, what's left of Eastern Rome and the, the Arab Empire in the in the Middle East. And of course, the great revival is always attributed to Charlemagne, King of the Franks, crowned Holy Roman Emperor in, in the year eight hundred. But again, the the sort of inner logic of that whole process is that you have a group of people who have come from really far beyond the the the, the limits of what would have been considered the civilized world. They move south. The empire collapses through a combination of over overstretch and exhaustion and economic problems and so forth. But they never give up on the idea of trying to recreate it, even after they have failed. And of course, in the end, they don't recreate it. Something new comes out, but it is in the effort to try to maintain the old Roman high culture that the the, the spectacular flourishing of civilization in what we call the Middle Ages comes about. And if it, you know, if they had tried something else, if they had sat around trying to write their histories in, you know, Gothic or or in whatever language the Lombards spoke or Frankish or whatever, there would have been no Latin literature. It all would have been lost. You know, who knows? It, Europe might have turned out to be much more like the sort of hinterland, the northern hinterland of China, you know, down to the modern period. But it was that process of trying to. In, integrate themselves into the Roman imperial tradition and to imitate what had come before that gave us that, you know, what eventually sort of emerged out of the, out of the rubble of collapse. Yeah. And the and I'm with you that the collapse certainly was real. And one of my favorite statistics is that late Roman empire, about 60% of the townspeople of Gaul were literate. hundred years later, the King of France was illiterate. And the literacy rate yes. fell to low single digits, and most of those associated with the church going forward. And and the Charmelaine little bright light didn't flash for long. It flashed for a generation or two, and then it kind of subsided again. It was really it wasn't until the Renaissance that that maybe the turn the turn was finally made with the fall of you know the Eastern Empire, which sent a bunch of scholars and materials to the east, and then the expulsion of the Muslims from Spain and the rediscovery of the Arabic translations of of the Greeks. So let's let's move the clock forward to the Renaissance. Right. So I I don't I don't dispute that narrative so much as I want to sort of augment it. That if you zoom in too closely, you will see what looks like the fall of Rome, a brief flickering under Charlemagne that you know, gets imitated a little bit by Alfred the Great, then it goes out. And then there's a sort of rediscovery of of classics that start under people like Dante and Petrarch, and then it sort of grows from there. If you zoom out much further, though, what you see is that the the fall of Rome in the West is paralleled by a much more, a much more catastrophic, but much less uh, but, but more catastrophic, but shorter collapse in the East when Rome and Persia have fought each other to the death and then th- they're sort of exhausted and ruined. There's been a horrible plague. The Arab conquests start. And then you have the sort of 
Dark Age in Byzantium and the Dark Age in Iran for maybe 150, 200 years. It's the it's the Arab Empire under the Abbasid dynasty that suddenly they've decided that they want to be a great world power. They're surrounded by all these Zoroastrians, Christians, and other sort of you know, Buddhists from Central Asia, these sort of much older religions and traditions who they've sort of been having a rough time lately, but they still have enough of their own much older histories and literature and, and statecraft and so on and so on, and so on left in order to be able to look back on it. The Arabs very quickly appropriate all of that, centered on the translation movement in, in Baghdad, beginning in sort of the late 8th century. And it's from that moment that you can plot an almost uninterrupted sort of upward trajectory of learning and science and literature and so forth that that Charlemagne and company are trying to imitate by looking back at their own classics and so on. And Alfred the Great is imitating that in, in, in his turn. And that's what triggers the huge translation movement in Europe from Arabic into Latin. So you get... That's where people like Thomas Aquinas and his teacher Albertus Magnus. That's where they. That's where they became acquainted with sort of Aristotelian and Platonic thought through translations made from Arabic. The interest that that generated in in classics is what eventually led to seeking the original real thing in 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 its Greek, in its Greek original from. Byzantium, right? It took a long time, but it, the 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 European Renaissance can be can be seen as the kind of final coda of that movement that began in the in the ninth century. Which is why I don't want to belabor this too much because I I could talk sort of forever about this subject. Which is why we should see the Middle Ages or what we call what is some kind, sometimes still called the Dark Age, from about the the eighth century up until the middle of the sixteenth, that that period is actually the age of diversity of thought, variety of of you know wide ranging academic freedom, and not necessarily globalization, but certainly a a, a very deep appreciation of sort of in, inter intercultural appreciation and the the sort of depth of scholarship which has arguably not really been matched. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, a saint of the Roman Catholic Church, is arguably the greatest disciple of Avicenna, the Persian polymath. And the two of them both come at, uh, at the end of a sort of long tradition going back to Plato and Aristotle. But in, in Aquinas's work, he's referencing Cicero, Aristotle, Plato, Aquinas, Maimonides, you name it, there is no one who, there is no tradition or culture that is off limits for him. And he, of course, wouldn't have done that in his Summa Theologiae. He wouldn't have done that if he had thought that he had nothing to learn from, from, from others. So why am I saying this? It is a position of great arrogance and arguably stupidity on the part of modern people to think that they discovered academic freedom, cultural exchange, and, quote-unquote, diversity. 
Yeah, so it's never as simple as the narrative sometimes make it out to be, right? So there we, we have this period, you know, Petrarch, Dante, etc., and also towards the end, Copernicus and Vasco da Gama, Columbus, etc. Mm. You then have a subhead in the book called the paradoxical outcome of the Renaissance. What did you mean by that? So I think that humanism what we call humanism, which sort of flourished in, in, in the Renaissance, that it, it, it reaches a peak then, but it wasn't invented then. It has, a, it has a much longer tradition behind it, much older tradition, which I think you can find even in people like Aquinas, even, even in the, 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 the medieval thinkers that are often thought of sort of fusty scholastics, whatever, that there's still, there's still a wide-ranging appreciation for human variety and culture and so forth that that you could call humanism and it's ultimately at the root of 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 what the the great thinkers of the renaissance were were on about unfortunately at the same time you also have a kind of attitude that takes shape in the minds of people like petrarch petrarch is so deeply obsessed with the the past and with the classics and especially with Cicero, that he's constructed a kind of fantasy, and the fantasy itself is 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 like an idol that he that he worships. He eventually sort of shuts himself up within his own mind, imagining himself as a kind of Ciceronian figure writing letters to antiquity, and so forth. And you get the impression that he has. He dislikes his own time so much that he's sort of unable to live in it. He prefers to live in a fantasy world. It's very different from from the Renaissance men like Alberti, who practiced more of a civic kind of humanism, where he was deeply involved in 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 the life of his life of his city, and he was an advisor to one of the popes. He, he was an architect. Archi- architecture is a very much a social art. He delighted in in exercising all of his uh, physical and, and intellectual faculties, but with Petrarch, you see the beginning of a kind of person who wants to isolate himself from the world and sort of only be with his his thoughts. And I think that there's a there's something of a straight line from there through people like Montaigne and and Descartes and what is his name Hobbes to, to, to maybe throw Erasmus in if you like. Yeah. Sure, toward the kind of person who wants to isolate himself from the world he's sort of retreated inward he living living entirely in a kind of disembodied dis, dis, the, the life of a disembodied intellectual and i think that ultimately that's sort of that's sort of bad for us but from there you can see the growth of radical radical subjectivity instead of the sort of communal communal might not be the right word but more of a public you know p- public civic Spiritedness. Yeah, then and you, and in your section, you titled The Paradoxical Outcome. One of the people you talk about who, though, is going the other way from that tendency is Francis Bacon, you know, perhaps the inventor of modernity. Talk about <laughs> Francis Bacon and where he took the outcome of the Renaissance. Right. So I think Bacon is an interesting figure because I, I think he's unfairly given credit for the scientific method. I mean, again, he's, it's another example of standing on the shoulder of giants that a lot of, you know, quote unquote, Arabic thought and, and the work of Roger Bacon, who's not a relative of his, but 
a medieval thinker that they prefigure the scientific the scientific method or at least the spirit of of putting things to the test and there's also the famous example of the of the Byzantine scholar John Philoponus of of Alexandria who actually put Aristotle's theory of of falling bodies to the test long before Galileo in fact almost a thousand years before Galileo Bacon though is the man who gave the new world of exploration and of knowledge and and sort of explosion of facts and discovery he he gave that all a sort of philosophical basis that the purpose of the purpose of well first of all you got knowledge by looking at facts instead of by developing a, a sense of you know theories of how the world ought to work or first principles as aristotle said you just look at the facts and then you you through a process of induction then you you sort of develop the sort of general laws out of it but for him knowledge you know, there's the, there's the famous idea, knowledge is power, that goes back to Bacon. Knowledge can be judged by its capacity to produce wealth. And he turned the idea, the very idea of ancient authority on its head, that he saw antiquity as the youth of the world, and nobody would ever go to youth for wisdom, so you should turn to yourself and your own time as you would to an older person for knowledge and wisdom. Now, I think that that can easily be overinterpreted. Bacon certainly knew his, his, his ancient authors, and I think it can probably be said that he respected them. But nevertheless, he inaugurates this idea that, you can, that, that your quest for knowledge is best served by turning away from ancient authorities. And from there, as you imply, that's the sort of the beginning of the modern idea of, of a break with the past. Yeah, and, and I, always, I always look at that as the, a very, very important moment because it's very quite interesting. Aristotle, one of the great polymaths of all time, and yet his kind of muddled thinking about science led to the fact that the science didn't actually have much impact in the world. At least that's one of the reasons it didn't have much impact in the world. While the Baconian Revolution, I mean, straight line to what the world we have today, pretty much. You know, by the by the 1600s, you know, we had Boyle and we had Newton. We, you know, it was on it's on its way. Mm-hmm. The shot had been called, and off we go. We did a very interesting podcast on here with Michael Strevens, EP 109, called "The Irrational History of Science," where he goes mm. into the prehistory, and he makes a very strong argument that Aristotle was not actually a scientist. He could call him a proto-science guy, but it wasn't until probably Newton growing off of Bacon that we had real science. And since then, it's not ever been stopped. Obviously, there have been digressions, mistakes, crazy stuff, but the arrow of modernity has never been turned aside. And, you know, I would say my take, my position historically has been that's probably a good thing, but yeah. there are no doubt, no doubt costs from that perspective. And I know you think a little differently about it. Well, look, what I would say is I, I, I don't think it's good necessarily to get into a kind of semantic debate about what a scientist is. 
but I understand the point about Aristotle versus Newton. I, I understand where, where they're coming from. But when, you know, like part of the reason why people, I think, want to take Aristotle down is that he was so, he was so widely respected and so influential simply because he had the kind of mind that ranged so widely over so many different things. And his, his main effect on, I want to say European thought, but it's really sort of the thought of everybody who ever came in contact with him was to sort of burst the bubble of the kind of fantasy world that you could easily construct for yourself if you depended only on Neoplatonic thought. So I don't want to get into too much of a digression about that, but until people like Aquinas and his and his ilk became acquainted with Aristotle, it was far more common to think of the world as this sort of set of symbols of other things, part of a divine plan or you know representations of of, of religious ideas that you know ultimately this goes back to to Plato, but it obviously it really strongly resonates with a kind of Christian cast of mind. But once Aristotle was rediscovered, then you had a, a powerful impetus to try to look at the world as it actually is. My, you know, what I call clarity in the book, and this is this is what gives you know, what we call now science, it's, it's, it's push forward, right? Observation as it, as uh, observation of, of, of the world as clearly and, 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 and distinctly and plainly as, as possible. The downside of that though, is that unless you can find some way to sort of like contain it or sort of shape it and frame it with, with, with analysis and, you know, filtering out the, the 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 stuff that isn't you know filtering out the noise, as they might say now, you get overwhelmed by by facts, and you can't sort of you know you can't really make sense of it. I think that a lot of us are living through something like this now, like in the so-called information age, right? The the information age is now the age of of disinformation, lies, and and bullshit, and all all the other stuff that you find on the on the internet that sort of confuses people and, 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 and makes them anxious and upset and so forth. Something similar happened in, you know, from the end of the 16th century onward and that, you know, very few people could, could, could handle the onrush of just sort of pure facts and surprising information and new things from the new world and, 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 and so on and so on and so on and so on. Obviously, someone like Newton was because he de- he was able to, to 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 make sense of this and sort of you know construct ostensibly a new model of the universe that made sense. It was orderly. It was complete. It was you know could be compared to like a a very elegant machine and so forth. But we should also remember that the age of the age of Bacon and Descartes and the age of discovery and so forth was also the age of 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 astrology and witchcraft and violent persecutions and and burnings at the stake and so forth that it, it was then that the that superstition 
and and the sort of religious violence really took off not before and of course we have the the example of the 30 years war and the wars of religion which all come after the middle ages after the great age of of aristotelian and scholastic thought so that's that's what makes me of two minds about about bacon and 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 company that once the, once the door was open to the world of pure facts and information that it was quite overwhelming and 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 too much for most people to handle and i think we have something very similar right now but there was a question which i think i failed to answer that you asked well whatever it was i forgot let's move on <laughs> right so let's you know move on to the next step was you know after 100 years or so of early modernity new class of thinkers had accepted newton turns out newton was wrong in some fundamentals yes. we'll get to that later but let's call it the high enlightenment you know people like hume and other classics of that era the later ones you know, voltaire and diderot jefferson franklin even napoleon you could say are yes. high enlightenment folks yeah. and in some you know some sense i like to think at least that our civilization is still basically a civilization of high enlightenment, even though it's under attack by the postmodernists and other forms of intellectual nihilists. And so it seems to me that what came out of that early modern era was perhaps the, so far, best and richest intellectual tradition the human race has yet created, which would be the high enlightenment perspective yeah. of the late 18th century. You know, I, I, a part of me wants to agree because the clarity, you know, the clarity of thought that comes out of that period, I, I think, is is often really extraordinary. I mean, sometimes I do get tired of the of the sarcasm of people like Voltaire, but it's brilliant writing. You know, him and Montesquieu and uh, Gibbon, Hume. You know, it's it, 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 even Jefferson. I think that Jefferson as a writer is somewhat overrated, but he he's still you know makes for good reading a lot of the time and you know the sort of the tidy mindedness that comes out of the french enlightenment it does have a certain attraction to it but i think that the enlightenment ultimately makes too great a claim for itself that the the clarity of thought that was so heavily emphasized then it's found in other civilizing epochs too the the great writers of the middle ages were not much different in 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 the in, in the sort of in their capacity to to present ideas as, as in, in in a simple and straightforward fashion, especially I would argue in the in the Islamic golden age, the writers prized brevity and and clarity and you know sort of orderliness to, to their to their writing above all, as they themselves wrote. But but there is a dark side. There is a dark side to the Enlightenment that manifested itself in the excesses of the of the of the French Revolution, and you know, to a certain extent, also in the in the American one. Although the American one was less less violent, that you know, even someone like Alexis de Tocqueville, in his travels through America, you know, he notes that the the, the sort of the tendency for sort of egalitarianism and, and sort of rational democracy to isolate people. And of course, that can manifest itself either in sort of rugged individualism that that uh, Americans are so proud of, or in, in a kind of atomized isolation that, that, that we suffer from 
that we suffer from now, what I would, you know, the kind of thing that I would prefer would be enlightenment, enlightenment clarity with the medieval expansiveness of, of, of intellectual intellectualism and, and the sort of wide, wide ranging thought that you find even still in people like Montaigne, but it obviously goes a long way back further in the past. And that if we could somehow, you know, if we could somehow have the good bits without the bad, I think we would have been better off. But as I say, it's not just, it's not just the clarity that, that is overstated. I think that the, the, the vision of pure rationality is too much that it, it, it is unrealistic. I mean, there, there's Kant's critique of pure reason, which I think he's onto something there, but, and then of course the romantics had a, a reaction to the, to the emphasis on, on, on pure unaided reason. But if we could somehow, if we could somehow recover a sense of that objectivity in our own postmodern world or something, I think we would be, we would be much better off. You mentioned postmodernism, and of course, I highlight postmodernism in the book as one of the one of the great evils of of our time. And and I'm I'm with you there. And when we get let's let's put that one off a bit because we'll we will talk about postmodernism in some depth. And I, but I'm with you that it is a very bad overall move, as was in my view romanticism. But let's yeah. let's go back a little bit because the one big elephant in the room we haven't talked about yet which is, the I would argue, the most important part of the high enlightenment is, at least amongst the leading thinkers, to finally be willing to say that all this religious dogma was basically just fairy stories, right? That there was anthropological and sociological reasons for them, but they aren't true. And, you know, that's where, where Aristotle went wrong. He was felt unconsciously compelled to weave his inductions with the fairy stories of his time that circles were the perfect shape mm-hmm. or you know all the you know, stuff you read you go how could a guy that smart say something like that well because it was culturally in the air you know that that generation of great high enlightenment people finally especially you know Voltaire Diderot Jefferson, though more politely Franklin more politely mm-hmm. Hume more obscurely basically said, Come on, guys. Childhood is over. We don't really need these fairy stories anymore. Now, of course, it turned out that the mass of men still seem to need something to fill that hole. Mm -hmm. But that's a different story, which we can get to in a bit. So what do you think about a pretty bright line there where the, the real thinkers of the world finally said, come on, let's not believe this stuff as literally true? Well, look, I yes, they did say that. But I think I think that there's a sense in which saying that is to betray a loss of their own tradition. Even even Saint Augustine is writing about the story of the the flood as as though it has to be interpreted as a as a, he knows that it can't be literally true. And a lot of his discussions about creation suggest the same kind of thing that there is a that there is it's. There is a sense in which it is true, but it is not true necessarily literally. That the you know the, the the six days of creation might have to be understood as a as representing much longer periods of time and so forth. So I mean, 
maybe for people like Hume and Voltaire, even that was was unacceptable or something. But th- there is nevertheless a much longer tradition than than many seem to be aware of taking taking revealed religion in a way that allows greater intellectual expansiveness that it's 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 not boxing you in it's part of a larger part of part of a larger outlook so there were of course people who took this much further into sort of outright outright atheism and then there were people who tried to sort of split the difference between some kind of you know they wanted to say that christianity was nonsense but they still felt that there had to be some kind of uh, spiritualism or what's the word? It's the de- yeah the deists you know the Jeffersons the Franklins yeah. John Adams even as it turned yeah. out in his old age. Well, I'm thinking of someone like Robespierre who went even further with the, the sort of the cult of the supreme being. You know that like this is it, it can get into a kind of absurdity where you know you're inventing your own religion, which of course people like you know the the, the Soviets and 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 Maoists ended up doing the same kind of thing with sort of the, the cult of Stalin and the the cult of Mao. Or the cult of Marx, for that matter, exactly. right? That it was that it was all predetermined. Yeah, you know, they might as well have been Presbyterians, right? As well as much of predetermination they believed in, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just I I think that the promise or the like the idea that we would ever really be able to do without metaphysics, I I just I don't think that that's ever going to happen. I and I think that there there are probably biological reasons for that. I think Jonathan Haidt infers the idea that the human mind is is set up in such a way as to try to infer a theory of mind or try to impute a theory of mind, you know, scanning the world to see, you know, that that's a rock. It, it, it's not, it doesn't have a mind. It, it's not plotting something against me. But that animal over there might that other person definitely does you know that kind of thing that there there may be an evolutionary reason for that and that if the theory of mind can be imputed to other say non-physical forces or or even ideas you know you're going to get something with a kind of religious flavor if not an actual religion which is why i argue that without a proper religion to sort of contain and organize this stuff for for most people that people's metaphysical speculation will run rampant and i think you can see examples of it running rampant when people try to infer malignant will to non non-physical concepts like they they talk about they talk about something like patriarchy or, you know, racism or something like that, as though they are like demonic forces that are sort of oppressing the world that have to be sort of warded off with rituals and and secret knowledge and things like that. The occasional burning at the stake, you know? <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 I would prefer, I just don't think we're ever going to get beyond that. And I would prefer to have a quote unquote civilized religion or at least an older one to to contain and to civilize those impulses. I think that's where the enlightenment goes wrong. Of course, there are people who argue, and I think I'm probably one of them, that 
there is actually a kind of religious or there, there's an almost sort of Christian basis to, to the enlightenment. The idea that you've reached a point where you have learned something new and that human uh, maturity has advanced, you know, there's a kind of Christian flavor to that. Um, but now, certainly the idea of the human autonomy comes from Christianity definitely, and yeah. Judaism before that. But so, yeah, there's certainly Christian roots and anyone who doesn't believe that the West is, has Christian roots, hasn't, hasn't done the reading. And, you know, this, this is like one of the key questions of our time to my mind, because I think we are finding that the death of God has left a God-shaped hole in in people's psyches, at least some people, yeah. many people. Yes. And, and I would say something like the romantic response to the high enlightenment was kind of a bizarre example of that. You know, they they recoiled essentially mm-hmm. from the from that dark hole. And then, but you guys, guys like uh, Schiller and Novalis and Schelling and uh, the Schlegels, etc. You know, they weren't much different than kind of spiritualist hippies at some level. You know, they're new agey in their own way. They they were they were they absolutely were. But what's missing from what's missing from that discourse? Is the actual dark side that there that if that in you find it in in paintings by Goya or in you know Mary Wollstonecraft's Frankenstein and so forth that the Romantics had an actual dark side. It wasn't all flowers and mountains. And of course, the 19th century, the Romantic era, is the great era of seances and ghosts and spiritualism and, and Rosicrucianism and the weird sort of secret societies and Aleister Crowley and tarot cards and so forth. So, yeah, there, th- th- those are reactions to the breakdown of, of, of uh, organized religion and to the, to the, absolutely to the death of God, except they show, I think, that they show that people do not want to let go. Someone like Nietzsche would say this, that, that they, 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 they're keeping the, I forget the, the exact uh, phrase that he uses, but it's like the, 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 the corpse is being sort of still being venerated in, 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 in a, in a dark room, even though they've, you know, the re- other people have realized that God is dead, that, you know the philo- philosophers and 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 theosophists haven't accepted it yet and and they're still because of course something like spiritualism or or table turning and and tarot cards or it presupposes that there are spiritual powers right yeah, magic. Yeah. You know, it's metaphysics of some sort. In fact, the the Ruttian catchphrase, which I I like the most of mine, is when I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. I even had some. I it's one of the tests I use on these art generating large language models, things like right. stable diffusion and stuff. I type that phrase in and see what I get. It's a very interesting probe. But it does seem that there is like a libido for this, right? I was, uh, some of the neuroscientists who study religion believe that one possibility is that it is a overactive agency detector. Mm. And the argument is when we were on the savannah, you know, it's a just so story. We won't know if it's true or not. When we're on the savannah and the, and some grass is shaking, if we think it's a lion and not the wind, well, if you're wrong, the costs are fairly small. You ran a hundred yards and you didn't have to, mm-hmm. but if you were right, the lion ate you. 
And so under evolution, and of course could go way back before humans to into the primate path, that there was a risk-adjusted benefit to having an overactive agency detector because you were better to gamble that there was some agent, most agents being malevolent at that time, yeah. poor little naked humans without much in the way of weaponry. And we have the, the machinery that's under evolution that causes us to see agency yeah. where it doesn't exist. And that that may well be the underlying neurobasis basis for this tendency to believe in spirits and gods and demons and you know weird stuff you know mm-hmm. anything that we that essentially has agency the what you know ascribing the winds to gods all those kinds of things it seems reasonable to me yeah i mean i think i think there probably is some truth that the the missing or or at least there must be some evolutionary basis like there there, there must be uh, yeah, Dennett actually does a good job of it. You know, Daniel Dennett, well-known new atheist, that he lays out the the argument of group selection advantage that people who believe together in some story, whatever it is, will fight better essentially than those who don't, yeah. and therefore they will have a group selection advantage against against people who don't have any any such syst- uh, organized systems of belief. And such people do exist. You know, the Praha people, etc., mm-hmm. who believe in nothing that they can't see with their own eyes, essentially. But those people are very, very marginalized, you know, living in the most remote corners of the world. And they have been beaten by people who get group coherence around a common story. Yeah, I was going to say something like that, that we also have to account for the role of religion, not not belief, but what you actually do, right? The, the, the cult aspect of religion. We have to account for the role of that in, in shaping communities, right? The, the, it's very easy for us in the West to get hung up on belief, right? Because our, our hereditary religion was so heavily shaped by doctrinal fights in the very remote uh, past that we've forgotten the emphasis on, on public ritual. And going back to you know our earlier discussion about Göbekli Tepe and the, the the sort of the foundation of of civilization that public cult is at the root of that. And you think about something like the cathedral towns of Europe or the the the, the local mosque mosques spread out in the in the Abbasid Empire as a sort of focal point of the of the community. You know you can see that very little has changed since you know 11,000 BC and that there must be some you know i think the 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 need for that public cult i think should somehow still be satisfied and if it doesn't get satisfied it's going to find some it's going to find some i think a social or antisocial uh, outlet yeah, I think I think there's something to that. Uh, one guy's work who I've really liked a lot of him on the show a few times, uh, a guy named John Verveke. He's a professor of both philosophy and psychology at University of Toronto. Yeah. And he's put forth something very similar to what you're pointing towards, which he calls the religion that is not a religion. He has, you know, he's an extraordinarily erudite fellow who's read all the classics, all the philosophers, knows all the world's religions at a uh, utterly staggering level, and in fact has a 50-hour video series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Mm-hmm. And I did a 10-hour version of that with him where we took his 50 hours and cooked it down to 10 hours, five two-hour segments. And the centerpiece of that, the turning point, his 
you know, proposal for how to move forward is to literally create a religion that is not a religion that has all the things you're pointing at public ceremony, singing together, you know, a sense of moral obligation, a, no- a set of norms that we all agree to and enforce, even at high cost, et cetera, all the aspects without any metaphysical baggage. Well, and makes some sense to me. Okay. I mean, in theory, yeah, but I would say, what's wrong with the ones we have? Well, I would say because they're not true. Well, you know, why well, would you, we want to inflict on people, you know, f- uh, fairy stories and try to convince them that they're true? That seems to be very unhealthy. Well, I mean, it could be, but what I would say is that I think that there's something to be said for the idea of a civic, a civic religion, which may have a certain amount of mumbo jumbo to it, but the key fact is that it's your mumbo jumbo. You've inherited it. You may not be able to make sense of it, but you're going to act it out. You know, like the Romans with their family masks and their sort of public processions with with all their ancestors' masks. You know, I don't know what they did. They walked down the street or something like that and told stories about their ancestors. You know, that 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 wouldn't have made sense to outsiders, but that's what they did to sort of hold their kin group or sort of tribe together and so forth. And with, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm less hung up on things like the universe, like obviously religions like Christianity and Islam, they have this sort of universal universalizing tendency to it, which they've inherited from late antiquity where the, you know, emperors and caliphs wanted to insist upon uniformity of belief. And so forth. But ultimately I think that, it's more important what you do and that for better or for worse, we've inherited these, these tools of sort of public, you know, pu- public ritual, which we could, which we could use. I'm not sure we need to invent anything new. The question of belief though is different. The question of belief is different, but the, the idea of a public practice, a public ritual is, is what I, would focus on. Yeah, that's where the Romans were kind of smart. They didn't care what you believed as long as you, you know, as long as you did the rituals. Yeah, and I think that like the emphasis in the, in the Christian doctrinal debates of the of late antiquity, there's a very good case to be made that most people didn't even really know that they were going on. That this was this was the this was at the very 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 peak of the of the church hierarchy, and that your local parish the people who attended if they attended they you know they, they just would not have known that these things were happening and that the insistence upon uniformity of belief was was what provoked the 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 the, the fractures and the and the tensions that occurred later but if you know if you went to your parish church or your local whatever and you had your nearby graveyard where all your ancestors had been buried and everybody had always been doing this and there were these rites of initiation and so forth. And, you know, you weren't really very much fussed about doctrine, you know, I think that would be okay. But yeah, the Irish managed to pull that off fairly well because they have their Catholicism is very, or their Christianity is very interesting for a very long time. 
there was it was not in contact with Rome. It basically evolved on its own, and even to this day, the, the rural Irish folk still have a fair bit of paganism around the edges, right? And they still believe in fairies and still have their graveyard ceremonies and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, that's that's kind of getting off into a different uh, different place. Let's next talk about another I would call heresy of the High Enlightenment. I I, I think of romanticism as the first great heresy of the Enlightenment, and I could. I, you know, we don't have the time to do it, but I can connect the dots from Romanticism to both Nazism yes. and Communism. Yeah. I think they, they are both downstream from Romanticism. And then the next big one, well, Futurism, mm. we talked about that in passing. I think we don't have time to revisit that. And that's the idea that, and which also leads to both Nazism and Communism. Very much so. And I, would call, I, I would call that one, you know, radical Newtonianism gone crazy, essentially, <laughs> Laplace, et cetera. And, 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 you know, when they should have been realizing by that point that relativity, quantum science, which Hitler famously called Jewish science, those of us who watch Oppenheimer watch, yep. though, of course, I've known that for a long time. And then now complexity science tell us that we can't predict the future in a machine-like way. The world's mm-hmm. always going to be not only it's going to be very strange, and that's a better a better model than naive Newtonianism, Laplaceanism, or futurism. But then the the other newer heresy is the one we alluded to. I think we both with disdain is postmodernism. <laughs> what do you think about postmodernism, and how does it fit on this road from the past to the present? Oh my goodness! Well, look, you mentioned the ideologies. You mentioned. Marxism, Bolshevism, communism, Nazism, fascism, and, and all of many of them, with the exception of Marxism, having their having their sort of matrix in 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 futurism. When all of those failed, when they had all been shown to have ushered in nothing but failure and 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 bloodshed and so forth, you know, there would have been a reason. I think to to look back on that and think, you know, like maybe maybe we were wrong to feel so sure about these things, and we we've got to sort of, uh, you know, avoid constructing these grand overarching theories of everything or sort of ideal ideological dispositions that attempt to explain absolutely. Okay, fine, I agree with that. That's where the postmodernists start, but where they end is. In the that basically, there is no certain knowledge. It's impossible. It's all conditioned by language games, and or power, depending on which postmodernist you you look at. And then I think that's all a bit. I think that's all highly questionable and and obviously stupid. In in fact, if you think about the idea of trying to live your life without any certainty about anything, it's. You know, it's preposterous. I remember, I remember when I was an undergrad at at U of T. There was a graduate student who considered himself a postmodernist, and he used to go around in the dead of winter, in the in the in the Canadian winter, in sort of surfer shorts, because he wanted to tell everybody that cold was a social construct. Well, that's 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 idiotic. That's stupid. He's he's probably now convinced that gender is a social construct. He may right? he may very well be, although you know you might not be surprised to know that I don't really talk to him much anymore. But the <laughs> the the fact is that it can very quickly lead into a kind of idiocy and and also to a kind of nihilism. You know, there's no no nothing means anything. There's you know no uh, no truth to anything, and 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 also to extreme 
self-preoccupation, extreme, what is the word? Solipsism, self, self-contemplation, and, and that you know, you're sort of constructing your personal truth and so forth, which is what we hear a lot nowadays. Lived experience. You know, lived experience trumps data, right? That's a, a, a current trendy postmodernist assertion. Right. Yeah, and, it's, and to your right, it's completely disorienting, right? You know, much better, I would argue, which is the Enlightenment view uh, adjusted by the adjustments I suggested, where we attempt to come to intersubjective verification of the interobjective, mm-hmm. to, to use a rutism, which is there are things which we can reproduce and there are things that we can measure and sometimes we get it wrong. And so that's the interobjective that we can all do it. Then the intersubjective is a number of people actually have the conversation, do the experiments, or at least look at the results, Mm -hmm. and can then validate socially that the following things are true. The sun will probably rise tomorrow in the east, right? A a dedicated postmodernist would say, well, maybe, but... (laughs) Yeah, they would would say that even the concept of what is east is, you know, like... Yeah, I was like, oh, stop your horseshit. It's totally worthless. That's my reaction to them. And it's like a disease of the mind that has disabled a fair number of our best and brightest. Because I don't know about in Canada, but in the United States, the mind virus of postmodernism most severely has been caught by humanities and social science people at our most elite universities. Terrible use of brain power. Yeah, it, it is. And the way I explain it, I think, I mean, there is this kind of loss of confidence that came out of the the, the mid mid twentieth century experience that everything we were promised turned out to be, uh, or at least promised by ideology, turned out to be false, and that there is a kind of you know there's something to be said for skepticism, right? The, the even, even skepticism. I think is is usually called for as a as a first resort, as as a historian. You know, I have to bring, I have to approach my text with skepticism. As a political advisor, you know, I have to approach what bureaucrats say with skepticism. And and you know, I would I would not be serving my you know I would not be serving well the the people that I have worked for in the past in politics if I did not approach problems with a sense of a sense of doubt about uh, how they were presented in most cases but that's it that's the end we don't need to go so far as to insist that the whole thing could be a sham or or proceed from the assumption that words are a linguistic game and that they they have no particular meaning because what you are then left with is that the person who decides what is true "Quote unquote," at the end of the day, is the one who wields power, and unfortunately, this is exactly how a lot of the people that you just described think. I, I don't find it appealing. I don't get it. I can't relate to it at all. I don't know what they get out of it apart from feeling like they're part of a secret cabal. I don't. I don't really. I don't really get it. But my guess is, and John McWhorter, the the writer, he wrote a book on. Woke at wokeism as a new religion. Yes, and he's he's, right he's not that. not speaking uh, metaphorically. He believes it literally is, and yeah. that it fits that religion shaped hole left by the death of God. And so it's just another one of these attempts to fill that void. In this case, it's a fairly pernicious and degraded form. But they you know have all the aspects. They have their 
you know, their solemn texts, they have their ceremonies, they have their burnings at the stake, they got all the aspects. And so I think that the easiest way to see modernism, postmodernism is yet another failed attempt to fill the God-sized hole in the human spirit left by the death of God. Yeah, so I think, I think that I, I agree with McWhorter on that. I would also posit, though, that postmodern, post, postmodernism itself has failed. Not only has it failed to usher in the somehow more tolerant, more open society, because it hasn't done that at all, it has also been completely pantsed by Trump, by Donald Trump, and by Alex Jones. Well, funny, the funny thing there I mean, is that Trump himself is a postmodernist. I mean, yes, he is exactly. an iconic postmodernist. Exactly. I mean, he's, he's a narcissist of, uh, you know, I, I, I was a business guy at pretty high level. I met lots of the famous business tech dudes of my generation, including some ones that are famous assholes. <laughs> and none of them hold a candle to the narcissism of Trump. I've given him the title of all galaxy narcissist, yeah. right? He does not understand the concept of facts, right? He right. just lives in this postmodern fog. And of course, he's a promote proponent of identity politics to the first degree. So he, the irony of it all is the post, most academic postmodernists think Trump is the worst guy imaginable. Exactly. And yet he's the perfect postmodernist. Exactly. And so is Alex Jones. In fact, Alex Jones will be the first to tell you that what you think is knowledge has simply been constructed by people who wield power. He is, it's like hearing Foucault talk to you through, like, I don't, I don't know what his accent is, but like, it's like, it's like you're hearing, you're seeing the face of Alex Jones and, hear, and hearing the voice of Foucault. Fortunately, I've never heard the voice of Alex Jones, so I have I don't have that little datum to even contemplate. I've seen his picture. That's that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, this is a failure. This is it is time for the postmodernists to admit failure and move on. Just just as you know, I, I see a parallel here between the idea what the postmodernists call the the grand narrative or the the grand récit in in French, the 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 meta narrative, which they declared war on. The meta, the concept of the meta narrative is not that dissimilar from the the Aristotelian idea of first principles that you have to approach the world with some with some axiomatic assumptions as to how it works. There has to be that that narrative, otherwise you will not be able to make sense of what you see. And, you know, one of those narratives is something like objectivity, or as you say, the intersubjectivity of objective experiences, or the idea that you can measure temperature. You know, like if you if you don't believe that you can measure temperature, like will, will, will you be able to do science? No, you have to assume that you can you have to assume that the ruler is going to tell you the truth when you hold it up to the table so we have to have these what the postmodernists now need to do is they need to surrender and develop these new or 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 rediscover old grand narratives one of the grand narratives that i think we need the most is the idea that we all have something in common we all have a we 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 all belong to a common humanity for all of its for all of its faults and everything we're all part of it most of our experiences are going to be roughly the same as everybody else's and we all 
we all have to come to accept this. Like the idea that someone's lived experience, as you as you said a second ago, is somehow like so fundamentally different from my own that we can't have anything in common. Like I just I reject that. I think that's a preposterous and fundamentally antisocial, and in the context of my book, uncivilized way to approach the world. Indeed, indeed. It's one of my one of my pet peeves. Unfortunately, if McWhorter's is right, he says, "Don't waste your time trying to convert a postmodernist. It's impossible. It's like trying to convert a very devout Muslim or Orthodox Jew. You can't do it." Right. An unfortunate. And unfortunately, these postmodernists have seized some of the levers of our society. So my guess is we're going to have to have a defenestration, perhaps literal <laughs> or perhaps, you know, metaphorical. They will have to be rooted out of their having their sweaty little grips around the levers of power in our society. Well, I mean, I can't disagree, but like, I just think, I just hope that we can do it without our own without our own equivalent of the 30 years war, right? Like it just has to, we have to find some. Some other way. We don't want that, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been a remarkably fascinating conversation and we did not get to everything in the book, by the way. And I will also point out that the book is a very rich source of bibliography and good footnotes. So if you want an entry into the broader literature, Michael has done a wonderful job of pulling together a lot of the most important books along this line of discussion we've just had. So the book is In Defense of Civilization, How Our Past Can Renew Our Present. So I want to thank you, Michael, for writing an interesting book and this very interesting conversation. Thank you for having me. And it was interesting. It really was. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.